Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Longtime listeners of this show will know that one of the topics I'm really fascinated by is consciousness, specifically the neural basis of consciousness how the biology of the brain gives rise to every experience we've ever had, ever will have, and everything in between, the sort of essence of who we are. How is it possible that that actually comes from a bunch of cells? We've had Daniel Dennett talking about this on this show from a philosophical perspective, along with Annika Harris. We've spoken to physicist Sean Carroll about it and many cognitive scientists. But it's been a while. So why don't we revisit and see where the latest conversation on the neuroscience of consciousness is taking us? Anil Seth is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and he's the co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science. And he just came out with a book, which I found incredibly easy to read, interesting, and yet with the kind of depth that satisfies someone who's been thinking about this problem for many years. It's called Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. Anil Seth, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So I really enjoyed your book. I'm really excited to talk to you about a number of things. um, But I think the, the sort of format in which you write your book is, is a really kind of great framework. And so let's start from the beginning and talk. I don't, I don't want to get too deep into the hard problem because I think our listeners are pretty familiar with the hard problem of consciousness. But I do want to hear your argument for physicalism and why you think that that or that is the, the approach that you take. So tell us what physicalism is and why this is kind of your starting point. Sure. So physicalism is one of the main options in philosophy of mind for how to think about the relationship between material stuff, like the stuff that brains and bodies and tables and chairs are made out of, physical stuff of the universe, and conscious experiences. This has always been a problem in philosophy of mind and thinking in general, because it seems as though conscious experiences are just not the kind of thing that could be a property of 
physical things, whatever they are, whether they're atoms or neurons or quarks or what have you. Uh, but physicalism is really the claim or the position that, in fact, consciousness is a property of the material world. It's either conscious experiences somehow emerge from physical processes and interactions or that they're somehow identical to physical mechanisms. And of course, the, the key question is, how could that happen? How could that be possible? That's the broad perspective of physicalism. And the reason I take it kind of, I don't think it's a slam dunk at all. I don't think that from where we are now, we can be absolutely sure that, that consciousness, subjective experience can be completely understood in terms of physical things happening in the universe. But it's a very good starting point, And pretty much most of science has done very well by taking a physicalist stance. And we can do experiments. We can see how far we can get in explaining properties of conscious experiences in terms of physical mechanisms. And then at the end of the day, just see if there's any residue of mystery left over. Perhaps there will be, but I think there probably won't be. And, you know, there, there are ways in which we can manipulate consciousness using physical material things, right? Whether it's drugs, like so during anesthesia, or even psychedelics. So we know that there is a kind of manipulation that, that can happen. And even if we don't understand exactly how that works, so exactly how a psychedelic substance alters consciousness, there's still something sort of, at least for me, as a person who's kind of grounded in science as a way of, of looking at things and in, you know, physicalism myself, there's a kind of comfort in knowing that, well, maybe we can understand a little bit more of the problem because here we are doing an experiment and, and manipulating that variable. That's right. And that's, that's the reason I think it's a good place to start, because whatever your persuasion and philosophy of mind, I think everybody would admit that there is this intimate dependence between brains and at least consciousness as, as we humans experience it. General anesthesia, one of the finest inventions of the last couple of centuries, you take a general anesthetic, you lose consciousness. And then when the anesthetic wears off, consciousness comes back. That's just an empirical fact of the matter. And it gives us something to do as neuroscientists. We can see what happens in the brain under the influence of anesthetics and ask the question, well, why? What's happening in the brain that could explain the fact that consciousness goes away and then comes back? And as you say, similar thing with psychedelics. You give somebody a particular substance, we know that it acts in very specific ways in the brain on the so-called serotonin receptor system. And that too changes brain dynamics in various ways. And reliably, you get very distinctive changes in conscious experience. So you're absolutely right. You intervene in the physical mechanism and you can either make consciousness go away or, or you can change it. So the challenge then is to understand the how and why of these interventions. Why does what happen happen? And, and at least here where I live near Silicon Valley, this whole idea of altering consciousness with psychedelics is, is a very hot topic. So I definitely want to get there. But before we do, I also want to talk about general anesthesia because a lot of people think it's about putting a person to sleep. And that's kind of what it feels like, at least as you're going under. But that's not at all what it is. So tell us a little bit about what's different between going under general anesthesia versus falling into a deep sleep. I think there's a massive difference. It's interesting, though, because we're so conditioned to thinking of anesthesia as being gently put to sleep for a little bit while the, while the surgeon does their work and then woken up again at the other side. But 
for those of you who've had general anesthesia, and I've had it a few times now, and I remember just being struck by how different it was. Of course, you're not there in anesthesia, so there's no experience of actually being under general anesthesia. It's only at the fringes when you lose consciousness and come back again. But what I noticed from general anesthesia is that there was no gap. I was gone and then I was back. And the time in between really could have been anything. It could have been five minutes. It could have been five years. There was no indication in my experience on coming around how long I'd been away for. So for me, this was a sort of premonition of the oblivion, the non-existence that was there before I was born and will be there after I die. And sleep is, is not like that at all. When you fall asleep, firstly, a lot of sleep, you're actually having conscious experiences of some kind, even if they're very simple. You don't have to be having vivid dreams. People have quite straightforward, simple conscious experiences at many different stages of sleep. But even if you lose consciousness entirely during sleep for a bit, when you wake up, you always know roughly how much time has passed, even if you're a bit confused, maybe with jet lag or you're really tired or the clocks have changed or something like that. And so even subjectively, the two are very different. And in terms of what's happening in, in the brain, anesthesia is not a normal state. It, it, deep anesthesia doesn't really look like, in terms of the electrical activity of the brain, it doesn't really look like what happens in normal sleep stages. In fact, really deep general anesthesia looks more like what happens in the brain in states like the, the vegetative state or even in coma, where brain activity is really, really distinctively different and interrupted very frequently. So they're different at all levels. And I think that's a, actually a good thing because if you were only asleep during surgery, you'd probably wake up as soon as a knife pierced your skin. And of course, <laughs> we don't want that to happen. So anesthesia also, as far as I understand, has a number of different components to it. And the one that I always found really interesting was the one that kind of induces an amnesia. And I wonder if you could, if that's something that you're familiar with, or if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of like just in case you did wake up in surgery, you wouldn't remember it anyway. Yeah, that's right. So anesthesiology, it's a really delicate art. There's the substances that, that actually knock you out. Now, I think some of them have a natural amnestic effect. That's to say, they engender that you just really don't remember. Not only not being there, because there was nothing to remember anyway, but thinking back about my own experiences now, it's a bit like dreams. That you, when you come around uh, from a, an experience of surgery, even the coming round begins to fade in your memory a little bit. It's very hard to keep hold of, much like a dream is very hard to, to keep hold of. And I think this is, it's potentially quite useful. Reports of people becoming aware under anesthesia are, are fortunately very rare, but they do happen if the anesthetic dose is not sufficiently strong. Then people may indeed come around and that can be very distressing at the time, especially because another component of anesthesia is usually a paralytic agent. So people are often given something that basically paralyzes the body so that it doesn't jerk around during the surgical procedure. And of course, if you wake up during surgery and you can't move, well, that is pretty terrifying. So that would definitely be something you'd want to forget. And so one of the things that you kind of, as you describe, you, you go under and then you wake up as if no time has passed. What you lose is that thread of consciousness, that, that sense that the you that is you 
continues to exist. It's almost as if you stop existing and then start up again, which can maybe kind of explain why some people who come out of anesthesia have a really aversive experience where they they kind of have to be guided <laughs> on that path or else it can be very anxiety-inducing. Right. I think we we don't expect to have ourselves interrupted that dramatically. I think this really gets at, at, at the heart of one of the aspects of what it means to, to be a self. We experience ourself as this stable point in a changing world around us. We experience ourselves as pretty much unchanging, but certainly persistent and continuous over time. And to have that thrown into question by having it interrupted as dramatically as happens in an anesthesia, I can imagine could be very aversive for some people, could be something that, that really challenges fundamental beliefs about what being a self actually is. And so as far as I know, when it comes to anesthesiology, the way that we know about it is kind of like we look at the effects as opposed to necessarily understanding all of the mechanisms. I mean, where are we in terms of understanding the mechanisms of how this interruption in consciousness works in general anesthesia? It's a really interesting question. For when I started in, in, as a neuroscientist interested in consciousness maybe 25 years ago, there was actually very little interaction between anesthesiology and neuroscience of consciousness. You'd have thought there would be a lot of crosstalk because it's the obvious intervention that you can do. But anesthesiology was more like a practical branch of medicine. It works. That's great. And we just have to figure out you know, what the right dosage is and so on so you don't overdose and you don't underdose. But it's only been relatively recently, at least in my own experience, that there's been a really fertile scientific dialogue between an anesthesiologists and, and neuroscientists. And the purpose of this dialogue is exactly to answer the question, because it turns out a number of different substances can induce general anesthesia. There's things like propofol, there's another substance called midazolam. Even high doses of things like ketamine can act as anesthetics, although they probably have a slightly different way of doing that. And so the challenge is to figure out, well, what do all these different substances have in common in terms of how they affect the brain as a whole in a way that explains why consciousness is, is lost? And the emerging story here seems to be that it's not that anesthetics switch the brain off in any sense, not that neurons are still firing, blood is still flowing around the brain. It's less active for sure, but it certainly doesn't switch off. But what seems to happen is that different parts of the brain become decoupled from each other. There's less flow of information between the distinct regions of the brain. Basically, the brain is not talking to itself in the same way at all in anesthesia. And that breakdown of communication between different brain areas seems to go along, track very closely the progress of loss of consciousness as the anesthetic kicks in. And, and, you know, that, that sort of dovetails with this idea that in some of these deep states of, of general anesthesia, the brain activity looks like it does in a vegetative state, because one of the things that distinguishes the vegetative state from, say, the non-vegetative state or locked-in syndrome, a person who maybe is paralyzed, but their brain is, you know, conscious, is this, that, that you have these islands of activity in the vegetative state versus more integrated synchronization of kind of activity across brain regions, as far as I understand it. Yeah, that's right. Although I wouldn't overstate the similarity because things like vegetative states, minimally conscious state, that they, they happen after pretty severe brain injury normally, either after a traumatic brain injury where there's some physical damage or a 
so-called anoxic brain injury, where it's the, the lack of oxygen to the brain causes damage. And so sometimes in, in cases like this, yeah, you'll see that some parts of the brain are, are really not active at all, and others seem to be relatively normal. Indeed, one of the things that's characteristic of conditions like the vegetative state is that sensory cortex is often still active. So if the sound is played, then auditory cortex might still light up. But that itself doesn't seem to be sufficient for auditory experience. So you can have auditory cortex go, that doesn't mean any experience of, of hearing is going on. And, and that really gets to, to this interesting question, uh, to me anyway, about, you know, where we go from sensation, where the brain is sensing, you know, some aspect of the physical reality outside of the brain, and perception, where it provides for us, without getting too dualist, uh, this subjective experience of, of, of you know, how, how we translate that sensation into something that is in the language of the brain. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, in fact, what I've focus on a lot myself in, in my research group here at Sussex. It's just this really old mystery, it goes way back in philosophy of mind too, how the brain generates perceptual content, you know, the, the things that populate our conscious experience. We open our eyes and we see objects with colors and shapes in particular places, spaces between these objects. These are the perceptual contents of conscious experience. And they're constructed somehow by the brain in its interaction with sensory data. And it's tempting to think that perception, you know, the world we experience, is the brain just reading out incoming sensory data in this sort of outside-in, bottom-up direction, that it works from the bottom up and just picks out maybe increasingly complex features the deeper you get into the brain, but all the action is happening in this bottom-up direction. That's what it feels like. You open your eyes in the morning or after coming around from anesthesia, and it seems as if the world just pours itself into the mind through the transparent windows of the senses. But I think building on a long tradition in philosophy and psychology that what's going on is very different and that what we perceive is largely coming from the inside out or the top down. And the key idea here is that the brain is continuously generating predictions about the causes of its sensory signals. And it uses sensory signals mainly to just to update these perceptual predictions so they can keep track of the world in ways that are determined not by accuracy. The purpose of perception isn't to represent the world in maximal accuracy. The brain needs to represent the world in ways that are useful for it to do so as an organism. So we perceive the world in ways that are useful for us, not in ways that are maximally accurate. But it all depends on this top-down flow of predictions that are just reined in by the sensory signals, which themselves have no color or shape or labels at all. I don't think it makes any sense to say that we ever directly experience sensory signals. The brain just uses sensory data to update these perceptual predictions, which I've come to call controlled hallucinations, just to emphasize that perception of all kinds comes from within, but in normal perception, these internally generated perceptions are constrained, are reined in, are controlled by what's out there in the real world. Yeah, and I think that to me, one of the things I find really fascinating is that it, it seems like we've also kind of evolved this, this, this sheltering of our, of our self so that we are not 
aware of this at every moment of the day. Otherwise, we would be in existential crisis. And instead, we, you know, like one example is our visual system. Um, let's let's stay with that for a minute. You know, it looks to me as though I can see everything that's in, you know, within my field of view perfectly clearly. But if I tested it, I would find that, in fact, I'm legally blind everywhere other than, you know, a focal point that is about the size of my thumbnail held at arm's length apart. And yet it doesn't feel that way because it feels like if that if I knew that it would be very frightening. Yeah, that's right. That I think that just makes the point that what we perceive isn't determined by the sensory signals. The sensory signals are used to update the brain's predictions. And indeed, in vision, which is, which is a really good example, you know, we're very visual creatures and also vision is, is easier to study. Our sensitivity, our visual sensitivity is really good at the center of our visual field, but it falls off very quickly in the visual periphery. Yet we have, when we think about what visual experience is like, it's not that experience goes blurry around the edges. But I also, for me anyway, it doesn't really seem that it's equally sharp in the periphery too. If I just look ahead now and I think about what I'm experiencing out to the side, it's neither sharp nor blurry. It's almost as if it's like got an expected level of, of imprecision, an expected level of accuracy, of detail. So it's a very interesting question what the phenomenology, what the experiential character of vision is like. But actually, even another good example of this is, is the fact that the world, the visual world seems to be this stable arena for our actions. You know, we look around and the world doesn't swerve or anything like that. It just seems to be there and it seems to have all these properties, color and shape, that, that are really in here in the objects that we perceive. Yet, we know that we spend actually much of our waking lives functionally blind because our eyes are constantly darting around. These are called visual saccades. We blink a lot. Yeah, we never really notice these interruptions to visual experience. And that's, again, because we don't just read out the sensory data. And so if our eyes are moving or we're blinking, the brain in some sense knows not to use sensory signals at those times to update its predictions. So our perceptual experience remains very stable. And that is also true of what I think a lot of people first think of when they think of consciousness, which is the sense that you have a self that is you know, either an observer or in control or however you want to think about it in terms of what it is in your mind and that you are always, when you're awake, fully conscious. But we know that that's not true, right? So tell us a little bit about how this maps on to the ways in which we can be conscious of our own consciousness or metaconsciousness and how the idea that we are always just as conscious is also an illusion. What you're bringing up here, I think, is for me, the bullseye when thinking about consciousness, which is the experience of, of being a self. And what does it mean to experience being an individual, the individual that's dramatically interrupted in, in anesthesia, back to the beginning of our conversation? And there's another deep intuition to challenge here, which is that the self is this sort of essence of me that sits inside the skull that is doing the perceiving, that the sensory signals are coming in and the self is somehow reading them out to form perceptions, but the self is the perceiver. What's really happening, I think, is, is very different. This goes again back to philosophers like uh, David Hume, that the self is itself a perception. It's not that the self does the perceiving. The experience of being a self is just part 
of the unfolding of all conscious experience. And all conscious experience is formed of perceptions of one sort or another. We have perceptions of the outside world, but our brain also is making perceptual predictions about the body, about the body from the outside, where the limbs are and so on, and about the body from the inside, what's going on in our internal physiology. And when the brain is perceiving the interior of its body, then I think we experience things like emotions and moods. And just this very basic experience, this feeling of being a living organism, that's all core to what being a self is like. And it's all just a bundle of perceptions. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to get just a tiny bit technical um, because I think that you know, it wasn't really until I read your book that I started to see some of these some of these differences in terms of these theories of the neural correlates of consciousness that started to make more sense. So I, you know, I'd read, you know, the Tononi and Edelman and and you know these 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 series. And so I want to talk a little bit about sort of um, sorry, this long preamble to basically ask you: Can you lay out the integrated information theory of consciousness and how that might be different from, say? a more philosophical view like Daniel Dennett's multiple drafts theory. So let's start with the integrated information theory, because I think that that builds on what we've been talking about earlier in terms of the difference between, say, a vegetative state and general anesthesia and, you know, fully conscious brain where you have these islands of, of activity versus integrated activity. So let's let's start with that. So what is integrated information theory? Sure. Let's, we can start with that. The, this is a very provocative, highly creative super interesting theory to me. In fact, the seeds of this theory were what drew me to move to America back 20 years ago when I went to San Diego for my postdoc, because I thought, here's an idea that could be really game-changing in our understanding of consciousness. And the reason I found it appealing was because it moved beyond what the dominant approach was at the time, which was just to accumulate what, what you briefly mentioned, this idea of neural correlates of consciousness. So somebody sees a red square what's happening in the brain when they consciously see a red square compared to when they don't, or they see a face, and what's going on in the brain when they consciously see a face. And you can accumulate correlations between what's happening in consciousness and what's happening in the brain until you're blue in the face and you may not understand anything about why 
that correlation should be there. Correlation is not the same thing as explanation. And with integrated information theory, there's this idea that you start from what experiences are like, and then you derive what the underlying mechanisms need to look like in order to account for these properties of experience that you've started from. And the key is really in the title here. Every conscious experience that we have is unified, it's integrated, it's bound together, it's all of a piece. There aren't just sort of separate experiences of color and shape and emotion and smell floating around. We have one unified conscious experience. The self is part of that experience. But every experience is also highly informative. If you think about the conscious experience that you're having right now, it rules out a vast repertoire of alternative possible experiences that you could be having or could have in the future or might have had in the past. And that ruling out of a large number of alternatives, well, that's what information means in this in a formal mathematical sense. It's reduction of uncertainty. So the idea that drives integrated information theory is that conscious experiences are intrinsically at the level of experience, both highly integrated and highly informative. And so the mechanisms in the brain that would reasonably be expected to give rise to conscious experiences must have those properties too. And then the theory goes on to actually derive some measures that we might apply to brain data and so on that track the coexistence of information and integration in the brain. I just want to have to say one more thing about it though, which is that Giulio Tononi has taken this idea really, I think, further than I thought he would take it to the point where he's now claiming the strong version of integrated information theory is not just saying that conscious experiences have this property of integration information and so the mechanisms that are associated with them also should. That's the view I kind of take. Tononi's saying something stronger. He's saying mechanisms, any mechanism that has this property of integrated information in some, way, in some very specific way will be conscious. There's a criterion of sufficiency here, and he calls it mechanisms that have a particular structure so that they correspond to local maxima of irreducible integrated information. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the point is that there's a really strong claim that mechanisms that satisfy this particular criterion, whether they're neurons in the brain or some future computer of some sort, or even some present day system of some sort, consciousness will be there. So this theory actually implies a version of what in philosophy is sometimes called panpsychism, the idea that consciousness is ubiquitous and fundamental. For integrated information theory, consciousness is much more widespread than we might think. It's present everywhere a system has a non-zero degree of integrated information. That's why it's really provocative in the field. I mean, and that's one of the, one of the reasons I, I like it too, is because it allows for different types of animal consciousness, <laughs> you know, where you, you, can, you can still think of an animal as conscious, even if they don't have the same kind of inner monologue that a human being would. Well, that's right. But I don't think you need integrated information theory to recognize that. Basically, all theories of consciousness, including the one that, that I discuss in the book, I mean, I, I talk about integrated information theory, and I really like the the weaker version of it, where you're not making this claim that any mechanism that integrates information is consciousness. I prefer to think of the fact that we can better explain the nature of conscious experiences by examining mechanisms that, that also have the property of integrated information, but I don't think it's sufficient for consciousness. But 
all the other theories that are out there, you mentioned Daniel Dennett's idea of fame in the brain or, or the center of narrative gravity. There's Stan DeHane and Bernard Bars who talk about global workspace theory. There's a strong tradition of higher order thought theory where consciousness depends on this kind of hierarchical relationship between mental states. And my own theoretical perspective is much more based on the idea of the brain as a prediction machine. I think they all very much allow for non-human consciousness and they all explain or focus on different aspects of consciousness that we might, when we might try to understand it in other people or other species, whether it's a monkey or an octopus. So let's talk a little bit about the beast machine. Tell us about your, your theory and make the case for it for us. Okay, well, it, it really just develops from what we've been saying about how do we understand the contents of perception. So we can start from the outside in. And, and if we think about perceptual experiences of the world around us, well, one good way to understand conscious perception of the external world, I think the best way, is as a suite of perceptual predictions that come from the inside out and that are reined in, controlled by the sensory signals that come from the world. Then the next step is to apply that to the self and recognize the self too is a perception. It's another kind of controlled hallucination, another kind of perceptual prediction that is also reined in by sensory signals. But now these sensory signals have more to do with the body than the world. And then just keeping on following that thread, we can start to ask, well, what's the most basic level, the most fundamental way we experience being a self? And for me, this comes down to the fact that we have this experience of simply being a, a living organism. And what might underpin that experience? Well, I also think it's another perceptual prediction. But now the perceptual predictions that underpin this most fundamental level of selfhood, they have a specific role. They're there to regulate the interior of the body. They're basically there to keep us alive. The primary duty of any brain is not to figure out how to speak a foreign language or play chess or write poetry or do neuroscience or whatever. The primary purpose of any brain is to keep the body alive. And there's lots of avenues that suggest going back to control engineering, to cybernetics, to all sorts of different formal approaches that will tell us that any good regulator of a system needs to be a model of that system, needs to be able to predict what might happen to that system so that it can keep the system within the bounds that it has to remain in. Like your body temperature cannot deviate too much from its set point. Otherwise, you'll get hypothermia and die, or you'll get hypothermia and die. And we can't let these variables like body temperature go out of bounds because that's too late. So brains evolved to regulate the body. And that role of regulation, that is where the brain's essence as a prediction machine begins. And everything else for me stems from there. So the fact that we experience the world by forming predictions about the causes of sensory signals from the world, that just arises from the more fundamental role of the brain in regulating the body. The way I put it, summarize it, is that we perceive the world around us and ourselves within it with, through, and because of our living bodies. And I think there's a, a really interesting implication of this. This isn't where I was expecting to end up when I've been thinking about these things over the years. It's just where the ideas took me. And the place that you end up makes it pretty clear that consciousness 
is very, very closely tied to our nature as living systems. Uh, it's much more closely tied to our nature as being alive than it is to something like intelligence. And for me, this is, this is really quite profound. It, it reveals consciousness as being woven more deeply into the tapestry of nature and shared, as we were saying, with, with other animals, and not just some fairly high-level abstract feature of a rational mind, which I think is still a hangover from philosophers like Descartes, who tried to reserve consciousness for humans in virtue of our supposed rationality when compared with the rest of the animal kingdom. And Descartes, he coined the term beast machine, but used it in exactly the opposite way that I mean it now. Descartes called other animals beast machines to try to convey the notion that they didn't have the kind of consciousness that mattered, that they were merely flesh and blood automata. And I think now it's really rather the opposite. I think we are conscious and we have conscious selfhood because of and not in spite of our nature as beast machines. So what do you think would be, if there is one, the evolutionary advantage for us to then become aware of our own consciousness? Like, why, why are we metaconscious as human beings? That just seems like unnecessarily painful. It does seem painful, doesn't it? It's, it's a really difficult question because up until now, we haven't really been talking about that. All the aspects of selfhood and perception that we've been talking about haven't involved this higher level aspect of conscious awareness that we humans certainly have, and some other animals seem to have too. And just to, just to put it very transparently, for us humans, we're not only conscious. We, don't, we have conscious experiences, but we also are aware that we're having these conscious experiences. And in fact, this is why we can do a science of consciousness, because I can describe the experiences that I'm having to somebody else. And we can reflect on our own experiences in the form of memories. We can judge how confident we are about what we're perceiving. And we are aware that we have a self or that we have this experience of selfhood too. The question of what the evolutionary purpose of all this is, is like all questions in, in evolution, I think really, really difficult to answer. You almost, you're almost always telling some kind of just-so story. But metacognition, this ability for us to reflect on our own mental contents, I think that is really useful. And it can be thought of as useful because we are complicated creatures. We, we have a great deal of behavioral flexibility. We have a lot of perceptual channels, a lot of perceptual modalities. And in a sense, a brain that has so many degrees of flexibility, degrees of freedom, needs to judge the reliability of the perceptions that it's making. And metacognition is a way of doing that. It's a way of assigning some sort of confidence. That's, that's a typical way these things are studied in the lab. We ask people, for instance, are the dots moving left or right? But then also, how confident are you in the decision that you just made? That's a, a sort of metacognitive judgment. And one can imagine the ability to make these sorts of metacognitive judgments is very useful for the brain in figuring out which bits of perception to rely on. And then at the, the higher level, well, why do we have this experience of selfhood at the level that we know we are a self and we can project out to the future and, and remember the past? I think here we have to appeal to society and, and culture. We, we humans 
have selves that are partly refracted through the minds of others. We experience ourselves partly constituted by our social interactions. And if we're going to perceive the minds of others, then it's almost inevitable that we also perceive our own minds in a similar way, that we can reflect on our own mental contents, just as we can infer the mental contents of others. The psychologist Chris Frith, who was a great inspiration to me, he makes this a very strong claim. His claim is that what came first, at least in human evolutionary psychology, was the ability to perceive others' mental states. And it's only in virtue of that that we ourselves acquired this kind of metacognitive self. So I just want to let our listeners know that um, Anil Seth's book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I want to end with a question that I alluded to at the beginning um, that I'm very excited to hear your take on, which is what happens when we manipulate the system intentionally, uh, particularly with psychedelics. I mean, let's just say there are sort of two major classes, at least as I think about it, of psychedelics, the ones that actually alter perception and give you a hallucination where you actually see things that don't have that kind of objective reality point. So you're actually, you know, where you you have these visual disturbances. And that to me is in some ways less interesting than the other form of psychedelics, like the ones that are now used in various uh, forms of of therapy for, say, post-traumatic stress disorder like MDMA, which are considered more that, that they affect your own sense of self and your compassion for yourself. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what we can learn from studying the effects of those kinds of psychedelics, the ones that just change your view of yourself that for some people can be completely life-altering and for others, just a way to have a good time at a party? Yes, there's, a, there's an awful lot to say about this. Um, firstly, I think there's still some sort of maybe disagreement about what exactly counts as a, as a psychedelic. So MDMA, some people, would, I think most people would say yes, but, but some people might say no. I think whether it's MDMA or one of the other more classical psychedelics like psilocybin or, or LSD, I think what's important is the distinction you made between two distinctive sorts of effects that they might have. So one is indeed the changing perception of the the outside world. You know, you see things that other people don't, and you may know that they're not real. That's an interesting aspect of some of these psychedelic hallucinations. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect, though, is the effect on the experience of selfhood. And this is often described as some sort of ego dissolution, that the boundaries between the experience of self and world or self and other become much more fluid, much, much less obvious. And this can be a dramatically therapeutic effect, can also be a dramatically terrifying effect. And one of the key messages from this re-emerging discipline of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is that psychedelics are not some sort of magic wonder drug here that just cure things like post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever it might be. The set and setting is crucial, and this has always been appreciated the effect of a given psychedelic is going to depend to a very large degree on the context in which you are taking it. And when we think about the clinical potential of things like psychedelics, that has to be part of the discussion. It's not something that you, you know, you can take a, a kind of antibiotic and it's going to 
work or not work pretty much independently of what else is going on in your world. But the same is absolutely not true of psychedelics. But why would they have this effect when they do have a good effect? Well, I do think there, there is something really revelatory about the experience of ego dissolution because I think it's a much more immediate way of getting to some of the things that we've been talking about. The fact that the self is itself a perception. And if it's a perception, it's not an unchanging essence, intrinsic, unified entity that's somehow within you. It's something that is constructed by the brain on the fly. And to experience that construction in the first person by sort of experiencing its deconstruction, I think can, can make us recognize that the self is changeable, the self is malleable, the self is fragile too and precarious. And all these things can be revealed in the first person this way. You can also, you know, I don't think you, you need psychedelics to do this either. Uh, meditation is another way where after much practice, and I have not been sufficiently diligent myself to reach this stage, but meditation can also engender these sensations of, of the impermanence of the self, of the dissolution of the, the ego. And again, I think this can be either a very therapeutic experience, or it can be a frankly rather terrifying one, depending on the context in which you're in. And then finally, independently of the, the clinical utility, which I think is, you know, it, it's really strong, but it's still yet to be fully established. And I think there's, there needs to be a, a note of caution surrounding the, the current real prominence of psychedelics as, as a revolutionary new, new therapy. I think there, there is a lot of promise, but let's not go over the top. But for understanding consciousness, this is also a very, very useful tool, which is where we started. You know, in science, if you want to understand a complex system, if you can reversibly intervene in that system and observe the effects, and, and if the effects are of the sort that you're trying to understand, well, that's, that's just brilliant. And with psychedelics, you intervene in the brain and you systematically and reliably generate all sorts of interesting and rather fundamental changes in consciousness. And of course, you can then study, well, what is the relationship between the change in experience and the change in the brain that's brought about by psychedelics? And as we study them more, we can also then learn about their safety profiles and how they might be used in a way that doesn't cause lasting damage. Because as you mentioned, they are not benign and, and they can lead to either really challenging psychological experiences or, you know, just just permanent damage, neurotoxicity to the brain if misused. Well, yeah, but actually my view on this is, is that the dangers are largely psychological rather than neurotoxic. And, and here, this gets back actually to the, to the distinction you were making at the beginning. So the classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, actually in terms of their pharmacology, have a fantastic safety profile. They are not toxic. They are definitely not addictive. If anything, they're anti-addictive. And so that's really good. MDMA, among all of them, is the substance that potentially has some degree of neurotoxicity. And we need to worry about that for MDMA in a, in a way that is less apparent for LSD and psilocybin. But all of them, I think, certainly have this risk factor in terms of their psychological effects because, I mean, that's necessary. You know, something that has the potential to change you for the better, of course, is going to have the potential to bring about a very aversive effect as well. That's kind of the point of them. Great. Well, we'll keep that in mind. And thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. 
Thank you very much. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks again. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>